iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and uh, welcome back to the Apple Store Soho um, for tonight's special event. We're really pleased you could all join us. CNN's chief international correspondent, Christiane Amanpour, joins us to discuss her new live global interview program, Amanpour, now airing on CNN International. In the program, Amanpour combines her experience, sharp intellect, and extraordinary depth of knowledge to help set the agenda for a new global conversation. Amanpour airs weeknights on CNN International, and it also airs Sundays at 2 p.m. on CNN US. It is also available as a free podcast download from the iTunes store. Uh, moderating tonight's special event is Jeffrey Tubin, CNN chief legal analyst. This time, please welcome Christiane Amanpour and Jeffrey Tubin. Hello, everyone. We've had a bit of an adventure already this evening. I don't know how many of you know, but there's also an Apple store at 59th Street. Uh, that's where I went. But anyway, I made it here in time, and Christiane had her own adventure. Yeah, you know, we've done cars and cabs and subways, and that's sorry, right. but there is traffic, but yes, anyway. we're delighted to be here. So, all right, Christiane, talk about the show. What's the show? What's the idea? It's a daily show every day on CNN International. What's it, what is it? What's okay, it about? so the reason I am so excited about this is that, in my opinion, having been at CNN for 26 years and having understood from the beginning the mandate and the mission of CNN, I really think this is an opportunity to get back to that mandate. What we're doing is real news. Real news cannot hide on our program. Hard news cannot hide on our program. And we're doing uh, interviews with the real players rather than the the wannabe players. Um, so we're really going after those people who are making decisions, those people who are being affected by decisions, and not always the big names or the world leaders, but people who really involved uh, from the ground in, uh, in everything that's going on, whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, human rights things we've explored in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and on and on and on. And what we're also doing is devoting half an hour each weeknight on CNN International in prime time to a topic so that we can go beyond the proverbial headlines, beyond the breaking news which bombards us all the time, and try to really increase the understanding of what's happening. Because paradoxically, despite this phenomenal technology that we have, and despite the revolution in the delivery systems of information, that has not corresponded with an increase in understanding and knowledge of what's going on. So information hasn't meant understanding, and we're really trying to do that on this. Now, in addition to the daily show on CNN International, on Sunday afternoons, you also have a show on CNN US, right. which is available to everyone. It used to, many of you, I'm sure, live in Manhattan. It used to be Channel 10. Now it's about Channel 812. Yeah, I don't know how which many is, which is really that. nice. Yes. Yeah. yes, but uh, what's the difference? I mean, you, you, far more than I, do work for CNN International mm -hmm. and work for CNN US. When... How do you think about that? How do you think about the audience that is 
th that the different networks reach? Well, uh, we do have a program on Sunday at the fantastically opportune time of 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon, which, of course, during football season is even <laughs> less opportune than it might be at any other time. But the truth of the matter is you can also get it, and this is where my, um, my, my new digital knowledge comes to play. You can also get the weekly, uh, the daily version on uh, the podcast, the video podcast, which is on iTunes and then can be downloaded. And we've got lots and lots of uh, subscribers to that, people who see it on, uh, on our podcast. But what is the difference? The difference is that, by and large, we do a compilation of the, of the week, and we put that on the Sunday. But it's not just bits of compilation. We obviously right. make uh, you know, a story sense. So we take perhaps our two best half hours and put them together. And but, I guess but I'm, what, I'm, what I'm curious mm. is, who do you, I mean, it's, it's a different group of people watching. Yeah. And, and how do you think about that? Because CNN yeah. International, I don't know how many of you know, you're, when you're overseas, there is a, it's a different network. It has some overlap with CNN, uh, yeah. but not entirely. And how do you think about that? Well, you know, I've, be, I've been, I've been uh, broadcasting for both for 20 years as a correspondent in the field. And I can honestly say that I have not tailored my journalism or my manner of delivery or speech or storytelling for each network. I strongly believe that we have viewers, whether they're Americans or whether they're around the world. And, um, but the truth of the matter is the networks are very different. Uh, anybody who travels abroad can probably see that CNN International is a much more traditional news network in that it actually tells you the news about what's going on around the world. Fact-based, uh, eyewitness, reporters uh, on the field, whereas CNN USA does it in a slightly different way. There's the news reporting, but there's also a much more significant um, uh, sort of sort of tailoring uh, a certain amount of commentary, opinion, panels, um, an ensemble of, of guests and, and, and such who, who sort of talk about the news. So, and of course, on CNN USA, there's not as much international news as, frankly, there should be, which is why on Sunday afternoon, actually even on Sunday morning, you start with John King's program, State of the Union. That has a good a good helping of international news, particularly when there's breaking and big stories. Afterwards, there's Fareed Zakaria's program, which is all international news, and then there's mine, which is international news. So on Sundays, we really do reserve, um, you know, to bring the world here. Okay, we're, we're going to include the audience uh, after a few minutes, but let's just talk about some substantive issues for a while. One of, the, one of the big issues on the president's agenda right now is he has to make a big decision about what to do in Afghanistan. And talk about what you think the options are available to him and the pluses and minuses of, of various possible approaches. Well, one of, the, one of the challenges when we started this program was, so what do we do? What do we want the voice to be? What do we want uh, the mission to be, the mandate? What, how do we want to make ourselves useful as opposed to just another talking group of people, you know, occupying airwaves and frequencies? And we really decided that to make ourselves useful and relevant, we needed to really be attacking the main, big, vital issues of our day. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But obviously, the big issue is Afghanistan, uh, one of the major issues. And yes, as you said, the president has a big, big decision to make. Um, 
you know, you've all read, you're all plugged in, you all know what's going on in Afghanistan, and you know that there are there is a spectrum of advice that he's getting from his vice president and some key Democrats. He's being told to minimize the, uh, the, uh, the involvement in Afghanistan and focus it sharply on just counterterrorism, which basically means you pull back from the notion of security and state building. You pull back from the idea of, of boots on the ground for a proper counterinsurgency. You pull back from the idea of development. You pull back from the idea of protecting the population. In fact, you pull back from your initial promises, and you pull back from the strategy that President Obama himself articulated in March of this year in favor of specific let's say, aerial bombardment of so-called terrorist targets or trying to get Pakistan to do what it can to neutralize the terrorists in, in the frontier region. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is a fully-fledged, fully-manned, fully-resourced counterinsurgency that's not just military, but that is also civilian in that it has a big element of development to it. Most of the people who I speak to in other words, most of the people who are in the field, whether they be civilians, whether they be NGOs, whether they be military, soldiers, grunts, or commanders and officers, and certainly most of the people who've covered uh, war and who understand what it is to be uh, on the ground and the risks and what's at stake, believe that the maximum approach is the only approach that's going to win. Uh, and so that's the choice that the president has to make. And what he can do is the minimum. What he can do is the maximum. What he could also do is the interim, the intermediate, the sort of dribs and drabs. Um, and I know that it's, uh, I don't get into the politics of it. I don't cover politics. Um, you know, I, I hope he's able to do the right thing. Because not only do the soldiers in Afghanistan deserve to be protected, and they can only be protected better by having more resources and more personnel, but the people of Afghanistan deserve it as well. Um, 30 years ago, they were part of defeating communism by the, by the way they defeated uh, the Soviet forces and led to the end of communism. The end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, that was done to a great extent on the battlefields of Afghanistan with United States support. Um, and those people there want to be part of the world and they want to be part of progress, and they want proper governance, and they want education, and the women want to have their rights. And there's two options. Either they win or the Taliban wins. So the real question is, is the United States prepared to see the Taliban return to power in Afghanistan? That is the question. There is no other question. Is the United States prepared to see the Taliban return to Afghanistan, return to power in Afghanistan, and with the Taliban, their al-Qaeda allies? That's the question. Um, obviously, m most decisions about Afghanistan are now made in the shadow of the Iraq war. Yeah. Here's a question about the Iraq war. Who won? You know, it's a very hard question. That's why I asked it. Because, of course, it was most unpopular. The intervention there was very unpopular. Everybody knows that it was done on uh, uh, a premise that turned out to be a false premise. Um, you know, the, it's still being played out. 
But do I think it's a better thing that Saddam Hussein is not there anymore? Yes, I do. Do I think the United States should have gone in in full force from the very beginning and got the job done? Yes, I do. Whether I or any of you believe that the, uh, the premise for it was correct, once, once the massive mission was undertaken, then it had to be properly implemented and properly resourced. And unfortunately, the debate at the time was, you know, the, f the defense secretary at the time, Donald Rumsfeld, decided to implement an untried military mission. And that was, let's try and do war efficiently without thinking about whether we could do it effectively. So efficiently meant doing it with much, much fewer troops than the military commanders believed were necessary. And so, yes, the war was ended very quickly. It took, I think, about three weeks uh, to dispatch Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard. Um, but the follow-up, there was no follow-up. There was no implementation because they didn't have enough forces and they misread the situation on the ground. So there were years and years and years of wasted time and death and destruction both on the US and the international side and obviously on the Iraqi side as well. And then they started a surge, a surge of troops, plus a political re realignment there. And that started to make things better. Now, it's, you know, there's a bit of concern. Uh, there are big bombs. Well, there was one huge one over the weekend. Um, it's the, the political situa situation is not fully uh, resolved there, to say the least. And I, I just hope that the eye is not going to be taken off that ball as it was in Afghanistan, which is why Afghanistan started to unravel, again, after after the Taliban were dispatched in seven short and efficient weeks. And it started to unravel because, you know, uh, people didn't keep their eye on the ball. And I think, you know, it, it is sad to say that, by and large, American politicians, and potentially it's because of the American people, I don't know, but certainly the American politicians, do not have the long view if you look at England or France or any of those kind of countries who go into these missions, they know that they're going to go in for a decade or more. From the beginning, they know that. And here, somehow, you're forced to pretend that it's short. So in Afghanistan, there have been eight years of war, but they're eight one-year wars. Because every year, the troops rotate. Every year, it starts again from scratch. Every year, people talk about how we've got to withdraw. And not enough resources are poured in to bring the real kind of development um, that would allow the forces to come out quicker and that would enable the people on the ground to develop their own ability to stand up and take over. Just to go back to Afghanistan for a second, I mean, the, the idea behind, the premise behind an increase in troops uh, would be that it would achieve success at such a rate that in, in a reasonable amount of time, troops would leave. Sort of short-term pain for long-term gain. Uh, is I, that, is I would that realistic? Say I, I think it's, it's long-term pain for long-term gain. Um, I've asked the, the commanders on the ground, and, and I've said, well, obviously, if you're going to have more troops, there's going to be more casualties, right? And they say, yes, of course. But there might be a spike in casualties, but they believe 
that's inevitable in the short term, but because there'll be so many forces who can really push back the insurgents, that that will then tailor off, like it has done in Iraq. As unpopular as Iraq has been, the fact of the matter is that for the U.S. forces, the casualties have gone down, uh, even though there was a spike just as the surge started. Uh, Before we go to questions from the group, one thing you would never have expected, I would never have expected, to say about Hillary Clinton is that she seems to have become sort of a low-profile person, at least in the conventional media. She's Secretary of State, been Secretary of State now for eight, nine months, whatever it is. What is your impression of her as the face of American foreign policy? What, what do you think are her signature issues? What do you think um, of her tenure so far? Well, look, it's short. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, the, the, there's been a lot of issues. It hasn't all played out. Um, I think that she and President Obama and the whole foreign policy team are doing well. On the one hand, what they've really done is put a new and different face on American foreign policy, and that has actually made a big difference. Um, if you look at polls, if you look at uh, uh, well, polls and and pub- public opinion all over the world the public opinion of the United States has risen sharply. Now, in some places, not. But in most places, certainly in Europe, which you'd say, well, isn't it, wouldn't it be natural in Europe? But no, during the Bush years and because of the Iraq war, even in countries that were the strongest allies of the United States, let's take Germany, for instance, the polls were rock bottom. You know, America had a real tough time uh, doing its diplomacy. Now, the uh, public opinion has shot up over much of the world in favor of the United States, and particularly in favor of President Obama, which is reflected by the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, In terms of actually affecting policy, that's obviously much, much more difficult than affecting your popularity. Um, And now they're having to tackle with the very real substance and the difficult, hard slog of the substance of foreign policy. For instance, in the, they've chosen two main areas, which is the Middle East peace process and Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's not like they've chosen it just because that was a nice thing to choose. These are vital, vital issues. Uh, and they, they're going to, they, they, they realize already that this is going to be a hard slog and pure popularity is not going to, uh, is not going to win the day for either President Clinton, uh, rather President Obama, or Secretary of State Clinton. And this is something that, again, I think American people need to understand and know, and I'm sure most people here do, that it really is not sexy. Nation building, uh, state building, security building is the hard, difficult grind of successful foreign policy. And uh, it's, it's difficult to get good press often because things don't, you know, don't work brilliantly at first. It takes a long, long time. But, uh, but hopefully they'll go in the right direction. Then there are all those other issues to watch. Iran, the nuclear program, what's going to happen. I mean... Yeah, that's a special I- expertise of yours, uh, Iran. But it's talk, so interesting. Talk about, talk about... I mean, obviously one of the big uh, outstanding issues is... 
uh, whether uh, Iran will develop a nuclear weapon, what, if anything, we can do about it, how we can work with our allies. Talk about the status of Iran at the moment. Well, President Obama did something very different when he took office. He reached out to Iran. It was one of the first things he did. He said, I want a different relationship, not just with the Muslim world, as he did in his inauguration speech, but in, Feb in March of last year, he made a special New Year's, Iranian New Year's message to not just the people, but to the leaders of Iran as well. And he said that we want a different relationship, one that's based on mutual understanding, mutual interest, mutual dignity, that we can all live in, in peace and security, uh, and you can return to the uh, international community. Iran took that outstretched hand. Again, I do believe that the reporting on it is not as, as sophisticated or as clear-sighted as it could be, because uh, certainly in the West, people are still locked in the paradigm of 30 years of hostility. There was the hostage crisis, there was the Islamic revolution of Iran, there's been this nuclear uh, who knows what for the last uh, 10 years at least. And everybody is locked in this stereotype of the relations between, um, between the two countries. But Iran has stepped forward. It has uh, stretched out its hand. It has said that we will answer President Obama if he's serious about a change in relationship, but that it cannot be a one-way street. Good relations or different relations cannot be based on you telling us how to be a good boy. It has to be a two-way street, and that's true in any conflict resolution, whether it's domestic in, in your own homes, between husband and wife, whether it's between friends, whether it's between communities, or whether it's be between nations. You cannot have a changed relationship unless it's a win-win situation for both sides, or at least that it's not a win-lose situation. Um, obviously, the complications... Yeah are the elections, right. and that's really made a big complication in this, because now President Obama is confronted with, oh my God, what do I do? Here we were stretching out our hand to this country, which we didn't like what it was doing with the nuclear, we don't like what it's doing on terrorism, we don't like this and that, but maybe we can get around a table and discuss our outstanding issues. And then came the election and the debacle afterwards mostly the human rights violations and the arrests. And so that's a genuine dilemma, because here now in, in the United States, many people who advocated engagement are saying, well, hold on a second, how can you engage with Ahmadinejad? Forget the nuclear thing, look at what the human rights violations over the election. So President Obama is going to have to make a decision. What is in the best interest of the United States of America? Is it to be upset? rightly over what happened after the elections and say, we're not going to talk to you anymore, hence then let's follow the Bush administration policy and previous policy in which nothing was achieved because there was no engagement. Or are you going to have to hold your nose and say, look, you know, we have our nuclear issue to get over, we have this, this, and this. So again, the, the, the jury is out. I don't know what President Obama is going to do. Okay, let's let's uh, go to our audience and get some questions. I think somebody has a microphone, so raise your hand and just wait for the microphone so everybody can hear you. And I believe we are podcasting as we speak. Oh, no, my goodness, are we Is really? What does that Good mean? Mike. I don't. <laughs> Hi, Christiane. Do you have any advice for um, younger journalists who are just starting off um, by going to stringers and freelancers overseas? Yes, I do, actually. Um, when I started, it was a much simpler, much, uh, much different landscape. 
And uh, it was 26 years ago when I started at CNN. And I, I decided that my way would be to start at a network from the very bottom. Other ways are, go to, are to go to smaller markets, particularly in, well, either in print or in television, and work your way up through the different markets in the United States. But now all those bets are off because of the you know, catastrophic financial situation. Uh, in my view, the retreat from real news, real hard news, and... Um, and all the different delivery systems that, 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 and all the different options that there are right now. So particularly when it comes to foreign news where most American broadcast media, whether it's radio, television or whatever, are not investing in it, it's difficult for people to go and cut their teeth uh, in, in, the, uh, in the field. So when people ask me, I must say, I tell them to do things that I might not have told them several years ago. I say, listen, you've got to get up and go on your own. You've got to go out there as dangerous and difficult as it is, and if you really want to do it, and freelance, do, uh, do, do stuff on the internet, do stuff on the radio. You know, if you go, you will be, you know, your stuff will be, will be taken because people are desperate for it and not enough people are going out there because networks and organizations are not paying for people to go out there. So I do give that div uh, advice knowing that it's risk, knowing um, that people have to decide whether that's, that's the way they want to go. But I strongly believe right now that's the best way for young foreign correspondents to, to try to get out in the field. The, the good news is, if, if it is that you know, with the web, you know, the barriers to entry are very small. You, you start a blog, if you're overseas at, in the right place at the right time, people will start picking up your work. The challenge, of course, and this is, uh, th this is broader than just individual bloggers, is how you turn that into a living, where you can actually live somewhere and pay rent and buy food, mm -hmm. because blogging is essentially volunteer work in most cases. But it is true, as Christiane said, that there is a hunger out there for paying from paying outlets for people who are on the ground and you will if you're good get some work you know you won't get rich but it's uh th there are there is potential if you're willing to take and, that and look what cbs news just did is it's I, if i'm not mistaken it's just outsourced a lot of its or a significant portion of its uh, news gathering its foreign news gathering to global post it's just had right. an alliance with uh, uh, you know this internet foreign policy news gathering outfit so you know these Stuff things could changing, really yes. yeah I mean, change and it could become you know at least financially uh, enough for people to survive on it uh, I have a question I saw you at Telluride Mountain Film and enjoyed your work then and thank you for being here with us tonight you mentioned wannabes versus real ch change agents C could you unpack that and give us an example of of a, a profile of a wannabe and then contrast that with a change agent, please. Well, look, am I going to get into ad hominem personal uh, chat? No. But what I'm saying is, look, you know, in every uh, field of endeavor, there are the players and the doers, and then there are the, the armchair players and doers. Um, and I, for to, to, to illuminate some of the most complex things that are going on around the world. And as a journalist, for me to try to be able to report on what's going on, whether in the field or in the studio, and to give the viewers the best understanding, the first-hand understanding, the eyewitness understanding, the understanding born of experience and of actually doing 
whatever it is, whether it's governance, whether it's uh, uh, military, whatever it is, I want to go to those people. Those are the people who I want to interview. Not necessarily always uh, just those who are in the opinion field. Because a lot of the media today is taken up by opinion and commentary. So I believe there's a lot of that already there. Anybody who wants to get opinion, whether it's opinion they share, whether it's opinion they, that will challenge them, has any, you know, any number of outlets to be able to go there. On the web, in television, uh, on the radio, in newspapers, in cable. Can I, can I just, I'm curious, when you have covered international stories, um, and you arrive somewhere. Hmm. In your experience, wh where do you go first to get sort of the lowdown? Who 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 is the, the who do you find most reliable? I mean, obviously, you want to talk to everybody at some point, but where do you go to get the lay of the land? Well, look, it's a good question because there's a big, uh, you know, there, there's a sort of a, the cliche foreign correspondent who sort of parachutes into an area. Well, the fact of the matter is we do. We all parachute into an area. But the question is, how long do we stay and what do we do when we're there? And this is a long way of saying when you get there, you ask whoever you see first what is going on, whether it's the proverbial taxi driver, whether it's the people at the market, whether it's the people in the restaurant or whatever. The, the trick is to, to spend so much time there that you build your set of contacts on the ground, that you then build up your information base, and that's always evolving and always changing. You can't just go, and I remember this in Sarajevo very, very clearly. I remember landing in Sarajevo in 1992, just as the uh, war was breaking out there. And I'd, been, I'd covered all the Balkan breakups, and I got there. I had never been to Sarajevo before. It was known. It was where the United States uh, and all the world held the, far, uh, the Winter Olympics back in 19... I can't even remember when now. 84. 84, 84. yeah. Um, and there was this terrible war going on. So how to figure out what was going on? I went to, first and foremost to the immediate places where sniping had happened, where shelling had happened, to interview the victims, interview the hospital workers, afterwards interview the families, interview the community, interview, go to the schools. In other words, your concentric circle is constantly expanding the longer you're there. And I remember I didn't go to a single official for months. I never just went to the officials. I never just went to, to the news briefings. I remember every day, obviously, there was a UN news briefing or you know, several news briefings. And I strongly remember never going there for the first several months of, of being on the ground. And I don't know whether it was intentional. I, I can't believe it was intentional. But I think it was just my gut instinct and my team's instinct that we had to, you know, Whichever way we could, get as much information on the ground as possible, and that's what we did. Yeah, Christian, and just in terms of the young journalist out there, Christian mentions the proverbial cab driver. I think it is definitely to be avoided quoting the cab driver because it is the cliche of all that the you know the big shot arrives from the airport and has you know a suspiciously voluble cab driver coming in, and that's constitutes his or her reporting. Now, only if you admit it. Uh, right. If you admit it, it's fine. I'll tell you what, when I first got, and this is hilarious really, my first um, real assignment was to the first Gulf War. And basically what happened was Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and all networks started to scramble. I was completely junior, had no right to be on a plane, everybody else was being mobilized. The only thing is, 
I was closest to the to the place, and I actually got there before many people. And we got to Dubai because you couldn't get into uh, uh, Iraq, you couldn't get into any other uh, Kuwait, obviously, because it was surrounded, and you you couldn't get anywhere but into the Gulf. So I got to Dubai, and I went from the airport in a cab to the hotel where I checked in, and at the hotel, I got information from people about how it was being reported, phone calls they had made to their families in Kuwait. At the hotel, I got that information. So I went on the air that night, and I said, this is the information that we're getting. So that's the proverbial hotel, well, right, yeah. you know, well, and the proverbial but, but, eyewitnesses. But, but, but then, but then I mean, you build. But you were there. I mean, see, that's the thing. You cannot do that by phone. No, you I can't. Mean, you cannot do it by phone or watching the BBC or watching ITV. I mean, you have to You have go. to be there. Yeah. I mean, look. Obviously, this technology that we have now makes it so much easier not to be there. You can Skype, you can Twitter, you can Facebook, you can social network, you can do all of these things, and all of them are really important because they add the eyewitness, they add, uh, they add what you can't see. But it has to be supplemented. If you're going to be a credible journalist or a credible journalistic outfit, the body of journalism has to be at least at this moment, until something changes, uh, professional journalists who are able to cross-check, to you know, verify sources, who, you know, who, who have a profession and who know how to apply it. But that's not to say that all the other elements are not fantastically important. You have a question over here on the right. Hi, Christiana. How are you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I'm a philosophy student from UCLA. I can, just can you hold it a little closer and speak a little louder? Right. I'm a philosophy student from UCLA. I just came to uh, see you. I have a question regarding Iran and the psyche of the revolutionaries. Uh, like 20 years ago, my parents you know, were like ready to go, but now it seems like there's a little bit of pretension going on in the revolutionary uh, revolution of Iran, mm -hmm. if you call it a revolution. Uh, can you address that a little bit? Do you mean your parents here were ready to go back? No, no, my parents 20 years ago were revolution or 20, 30 years ago revolutionaries, but the new, the new crowd, yeah. my generation, has, it seems to be a little bit of pretension going on. And, yeah, okay. Uh, the green wearing and all that. Yeah, um, uh, for all of, all of you with podcasts or who want to watch uh, a little bit about this, um, we're doing uh, an anniversary program on the hostage crisis 30 years ago, and that will air next Wednesday on the date of the anniversary and also on CNN USA the following Sunday to address a little bit of, of the history. But um, I still think it's all right to go back. I mean, I still think that uh, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to get involved in politics, as you can see, it's not the most uh, safe and easy thing to do. You were there during the election. I was. I was there during the election. And... Um, I've covered every election since the revolution, just about, and it was a f it was a remarkable thing to see that there was a huge amount of um, of involvement by so many Iranians who wanted to go to vote. Um, we most of us, before we got there, thought that uh, Ahmadinejad was going to win again, and it was really only in the ten days to a week before the election that things started to change on the ground and some real hope and vigor and momentum was put into the reform movement. And you saw something remarkable, really. I mean, I was stunned because I'd covered the previous reform election back in 1997, and that was the first really energized election in Iran. But this, you had literally both camps 
the Ahmadinejad camp, the more conservative camp on one side of the street, literally, and the reform camp on the other side of the street, supporters, and each arguing, debating, talking, shouting sometimes, but mostly good-humored interaction for about 10 days to a week leading up to the election. There were rallies, there were con con competing rallies, there was a huge amount of unseen, unheard of political participation and political activity in the streets. And, you know, by the time it got to the election, there was such a heavy turnout that many people believed that that heavy turnout spoke to a desire for change and uh, potentially would benefit the, the reformers. And obviously the reformers still believe that they benefit what, and they what, should have won. What do you think about that issue and the fraud in terms of w the vote count that was announced? Do you think Ahmadinejad really won? Look, I, don't, I haven't seen the ballots. I don't know. I think that most people believe that it should at least have gone to a second round. And uh, many, many of the people who I interviewed, not just in Tehran, but in uh, other areas, and people who we were in contact with on the day of the election around the country, uh, many people said that they had come out for, uh, for the reformists. And historically, if you look at the last several elections, when there's been a massive turnout, it's been for reform. So... You know, this will continue to be argued throughout history or throughout uh, the future. I think the real question was the reaction to the election. And, uh, and that, I think, is still being played out. Uh, as some people say, you know, obviously the demonstrations have ceased on the street, but many people say the, you know, there's, there's fire burning under the ashes. So, so we'll see what happens. But interestingly enough, you know, lots of people, again, this is the big chasm of understanding. People in the West were reporting what was going on in Iran as if it was another revolution, whereas people in Iran were not talking about another revolution. They were talking about a reform of their system, of more political participation, of more dem democracy, of more rights, of more freedoms, social and political. And so they, again, there was sort of a, uh, a sort of a disconnect between the way people from the outside looked at what was going on. Uh, and that, of course, is what led the uh, military, the, Islam uh, the Republican guards, the revolutionary guards rather, and the system to get very, very scared and to crack down because they believed that the United States wanted to engineer a velvet revolution. And it is so interesting the way history repeats itself over and over again. I remember in Iran during the height of the reform pe period, Many people in Iran, many leaders being really, really worried because they didn't want to see in Iran what happened under Gorbachev in the Soviet Union, the way the system collapsed, the way the economy collapsed, the way everything seemed to collapse with the collapse of the Soviet empire. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting to see how people today look at what happened 10, 20 years ago and, and make their decisions based on that sometimes. Right over here. Uh, oh, hello. Uh, so I had a slightly more general question about you know the way you know journalism sort of works. I find hold, it always hold the microphone sort of, a little closer. No problem. I find it always sort of is either completely analytical or extraordinarily lurid in that sort of how you know a voice will stand out from the less you know lurid sort of stories. As a consequence, I find 
even with fairly well-educated, read, you know, individuals, is only like a sort of superficial, you know, understanding of the facts, but the actual ability to emote with the situation on the ground. And I'm from one of those countries that is slightly, you know, notorious in the news. So, Which one? Well, not that notorious. Ghana. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people are very surprised to, you know, understand that things aren't the way the news sort of portrays them. So I was wondering what's a way of rethinking it? I mean, it's a cliche that the news, you know, tends to, you know, explode the most dramatic stories, but it's a cliche of screwing power because, you know, nothing's really being done about it. Um, look, yeah, I mean, daily journalism has often been and can often be accused of just sk skating across the surface and uh, reinforcing cliches and stereotypes, but also covering just the breaking news uh, and the superficialities. I, I think that in a way, will always be that way because daily news and hard news reporting, you know, takes the immediate and reports it because that is one of our mandates. But then there's so many other ways to, to penetrate below the surface, whether it's by um, uh, single subject programs, whether it's by documentaries, whether it's by using all the tools at our disposal. For instance, right now, at, at, certainly with our program, we're using the internet and our uh, digital producer Samuel Burke is here. Maybe he can even come up and, and, and help explain a bit more. But we're really trying, not just to slap anything on our webpage, but really trying to expand what we do in that half hour on television with more information that isn't just another link to get another small fact, but it really does link you to a deeper, a more lyrical sometimes, a more uh, a more visual uh, element of the stories that we're covering. Can I, can I get up here? What, what is a digital producer come do? On, I don't even know Samuel. what that is. I mean, there, come on, come so, on there Samuel. Come on, Samuel. And I must say, many members of our staff are here, and it's really, really lovely. They have worked so hard, and they're all so unbelievably unbelievably talented and committed to this. No, I, th I think there's a, big, there's a big misconception, and I've told Christian this a bunch. People think of Twitter as just a cheap communication type of thing, but CNN is constantly researching what are people looking for on Twitter, and a lot of times it's news. In fact, four out of ten times people are looking to see what news people are talking about. So you can take these opportunities, and if you, even if it's just 144 characters, Christian can say, well, so-and-so just told me on my program for the first time that Iran and Israel have met together in a room, and you put a little link, it's a few characters, but it takes them to a broader piece of information. So I think that there are these things that don't seem like they're so in-depth, and if you just take that little opportunity and try and bring them to the podcast, to the program, that you can fill, fill it with that bigger news. And what did you say the other day was the highest, you know, the most... The other day we were the, we were the first news program, Christian had the first news program, to talk about a new report from the United Nations about uh, opium in Afghanistan. And so we really Twittered very aggressively, and by the end of the day, it was the second most Twittered about thing in the entire world. And that was linked back to our report, back to the podcast. And so I think a lot of times people hear about Twitter, and yes, the number nine thing may have been Pamela Anderson, but we were the number two thing, talking about the Taliban's involvement in... in and, and you have just struck, I think, really, he's, he's, put, he's struck the nail on... What, what have you struck? You've hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, two things here. One, people, I do believe, want hard news. 
And I think when we give it or when it is given, people will respond and they do want it. And I think that's something that I learned from the Twitter and Facebook and social networking because, frankly, I had not done it before this program. And uh, I was rather reluctant because I didn't want to say I'm getting off my seat now to go to anchor. I'm having a cup of coffee. I, I don't think people are interested in that. I, and I'm, I'm not anyway. But um, the, the fact that it's news, I think, is really, really, really interesting. And, and that is something that is counterintuitive, that people think that, um, you know, hard news is too difficult to, to be accessible. But I think people want hard news. It, it and, yeah, yeah. and there are a bunch of different ways that you can do it. After our show, we're having Christian continue a conversation, getting people off the set, making them feel a little more comfortable in the newsroom, maybe bringing in some producers to bring in a different perspective, and then continuing the conversation online and sending those conversations out over the Internet. So it's just, I think that the Internet is just another platform. Yeah. It's, just another, it's just another medium. People never thought that television would take over radio and that type of thing, and slowly it does. It's just another place to do the same type of, of journalism, including hard journalism. If I can just add one point, you know, I, there is a lot that we as journalists can and sh should do differently and to adapt to the world, but I think it is also incumbent upon news consumers to be even slightly aggressive because, I mean, with the web, there is more information available to you than ever before in the history of humankind instantly. And fabulously detailed information as well, not just Pamela Anderson news. I mean, there and is we, and we have to compute for it. TMZ beat right. a lot of people to it by being out there, but there has, for every TMZ, there has to be a Christian Amanpour trying to fill that hole just as fast as... But, but, as but if you want to go to the Human Rights Watch website, you can read fabulous reports on countries all over the world and, you know, it's free, it's instant, it's really great stuff. So there is, in many respects, no excuse for ignorance uh, out there either. And oh, Samuel's been putting up all those links on our, on our website, on the CNN.com page, and leading to our, our, our page as well. And I think another thing, this whole TMZ, Pamela Anderson, American Idol, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a specious comparison that uh, the people who don't respect real news always say, oh, we can't do this because we'll never get enough ratings. You know, we can't compete with American Idol. Well, of course we can't compete with American Idol, nor should we be trying to compete with American Idol. They have their own value, and they're good programs, and all the entertainment stuff is good. But when we in the news or our bosses hold us up to the same standards of, as entertainment and say, well, we can't get as good ratings therefore you know we can't we shouldn't be doing it it's mixing apples and oranges it's mixing apples and oranges we have to really do the best we can in our sphere and not hold ourselves up to false to false rating standards um more question who has the microphone yeah hi so we're both in the international reporting program at CUNY, and what our teachers always telling us is for us to be a one-man band and go out, do reporting. So do you really think that we should be great writers, photographers, web people, designers, and can we be all that? Well, that's the thing. Look, I think that your, your, your professors are reflecting the, the, the reality right now. And, you know, whereas... Catherine O'Hearn, who's our executive producer, started off being a camerawoman, right? And you had a big 
team by and large. There was you, there was a sound person, there was a producer, there was a correspondent. Those were the, the good old days. Um, now it is more and more one-man bands. Although still CNN, I would say the minimum that we do is two people. Um, I certainly don't know how to shoot and I've made myself unable to shoot because I don't want to do all those things. I don't think I could do them all. But I'm from an older generation and I still believe that, uh, you know, younger people than me can do, can do it all. They can multitask much better. Um, but I do think something gets lost in translation. I don't think you can do it all as well. And if you look at documentaries and things like that, some fly-on-the-wall ones are one-man bands, but that's how they're presented. But then if you want the real... I mean, if you look at, for instance, one of the wonderful documentaries I just saw was Obama's War on uh, PBS on Frontline. Well, that was definitely not a one-man band, nor was it done in, you know, in three days. And it's a really brilliant piece of journalism, a really valuable, brilliant piece of journalism. So the answer is you can do both. The, the, I, I would like to put in a word for your professor that I think your professor's right. And not just because today you have to be a one-man band. The reason why I think he or she is right is that the, the industry in the world is changing so fast that you have to be in a position to go where the opportunities are. And the more skills you have, the more chances you have to go where, where the world is evolving. I mean, just one small example from my own career. You know, when I got out of law school, I could not have said, when I grow up, I want to be a television legal analyst, because the job didn't exist. There was no such thing. There wasn't one person in the world employed that way. Now, for better or worse, it was the O.J. Simpson that created the demand for this. But, you know, that I, I was fortunate in that I had a set of skills that I could adapt to this new world. I don't know what it's going to look like in 10 years or even five years, but if you know how to, you know, build websites, shoot pictures, shoot video, you are going to be in so much better shape than someone who says, you know, I just want to be a photographer or I just want to be a writer. I, I, and, and so I think, you, you know, you won't be great at everything necessarily, but you, you'll have skills you can adapt. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is very easy to do on a Mac, by the way. I, 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 very well put. <laughs> I just done the earlier discussion. Could you hold just the hold it to your. Sorry, yeah. I'm from the Philippines, yeah. and you may not know, but the country was hit by three devastating yes. typhoons yes, week know. on week, and it's through Twitter and Facebook that a lot of us got information about who needed help, and those of us who were away were able to mount relief efforts. And in two days here in New York, mm -hmm. because of Facebook, we were able to get yeah. 80 people at yeah. a fundraiser yeah. and raise like $5,000 just like that. And that's the ultimate social networking, and that's why it's really good for those things. Um, uh, one more question, I think. We're just about out of time. The gentleman in the striped shirt back there. Hello, good evening. Uh, going back to the international news reporting, the way of reporting international news, uh, the cliches, and also the audience ratings, uh, I would like to ask you, during the Cold War, there was a specific enemy for the United States and for the Western world. So it was quite easy to report news, international news, for, for foreign correspondents. Nowadays, I mean, the, the scene, the, the war scene might be the same, Afghanistan. However, uh, it's quite difficult to explain to American audiences what, what's going on there and why it is relevant for, for the American people. Um, do you struggle every week to make people understand what's going on 
and why it's interesting as opposed to, well, you know, watching American Idol and think everything is going to be okay. I mean, how do you make that relevant to the American people? Well, unfortunately, Afghanistan is very, very relevant because that's where 9-11 was hatched. And as I said, in my opinion, the question right now is, and this is the question we pose all the time, does the United States want to see the Taliban and Al-Qaeda where 9-11 was hatched and plotted and dispatched, you know, fall again in Afghanistan? So I, I believe that you can make all these vital issues compelling, be number one, because they are compelling, and number two, if you look at, for instance, 60 Minutes, which I had, do you, do you know the program 60 Minutes here? Okay, so 60 Minutes, I had the great privilege of working for, for nine years, I contributed while I was at CNN. And what I learned there was something that was invaluable. It is that no matter what the story, whether it is of Afghanistan or Iran or some really difficult but important political situation or whether it's a celebrity profile or, or a softer interview or, or a feature, good storytelling is what counts and can make anything compelling, not by making it up, not by fancy footwork, but just by understanding and being able to tell a really good story and to find the compelling, uh, the compelling parts of it. And to, the human drama is always compelling. And so, again, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I'm not saying it should be just hard news or nothing. I think there has to be a really appropriate balance because we don't just live in a world of, of TMZ and gossip. We live in a world where every day, we're living now for the last eight years with the fallout from 9-11. You can't go to an airport and not worry about what happened on 9 Every day, every, every minute you travel, every door you step into, every time you swipe your card at your own place of, of work, it's because of 9-11. Security, 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 fear, fear, fear. So I just think that the idea of turning away and not doing this stuff and not doing it properly or well is just, uh, it's a luxury that none of us, none of our civilization can afford anymore. And yet, you know, it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle to tell the hard news. It's still a struggle to tell the compelling news. And there are very few places that do it now. There's 60 Minutes. Uh, there's Nightline. There's PBS. There are s programs on CNN which take that challenge and do it. Um, there's our program. Uh, but, but it is hard. It is hard. And, and we're committed because we have a mission. And we're, we're journalists not just, not only to pay the bills, but because we believe in it. And because this is a great profession. And because it's a really noble profession. And because it can really change people's mindsets and really can, can make a difference just by telling the truth, just by highlighting the things that need to be highlighted. And in this discussion that we're having right now over the closure of, of let's say, medium market newspapers or big newspapers or, I mean, let's not forget that the United States has a constitutional amendment that defends and promotes freedom of, of expression and the press. But with that comes the obligation uh, you know, where would this society be without great journalists of the past who uncovered the, uh, you know, who held officials accountable, who uncovered corruption, who, you know, look at Woodward and Bernstein, look at the great journalists who, 
who spearheaded, I don't know, civil rights Im implementation, let's say, in, in many parts of this country, and were on the forefront of so many of the great struggles of this nation. And the same is true in any other country, in Iran, it's journalists who've been on the forefront and the cutting edge of reform. In Eastern Europe, the same. In Africa, it's young uh, women and activists, and many of them journalists who stand up to be counted. So this is not just a luxury profession. This is a major, contribution to democracy and civil society. And unless we understand that, and unless we're ready to take the risks and to do the hard work to uphold this profession, all of us societies will be weaker, all of them. Thank you all for coming. Thank, Thank you. you both for coming. Check out our website to our store here, folks, apple.com slash Soho, where you can keep up on all the free workshops and events that happen here in the store in Soho. Thank you all for coming, and have a great night.